In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Father, we ask that you would send your Holy Spirit to give us ears to hear what you are trying to say to us. Unplug our ears, we pray. Father, open our eyes so that we may see the truth and wisdom that comes from your words and from the mouth of our Lord Jesus Christ. We pray this in his name. Amen. You may be seated. Well, first I would like to give a bit of a um, a personal uh, update uh, for you all. As you all have noticed, um, over the last uh, several weeks, we have had um, uh, deaths within um, not our parish family, but our extended parish uh, family. We know that the the crosses are mourning the loss of Amy's uh, father-in-law, Morris. We also know that Will Alexander, uh, his mother, um, passed away several weeks ago. Um, and, and also, uh, we know that, um, that David Templin, senior, his mother, has been battling um, an illness. Uh, Jennifer and I received a word um, on Friday, actually, that her mother has been, I guess, apparently was battling pneumonia, had to be hospitalized. She's still in the hospital, um, and she has developed sepsis. Um, they don't know exactly kind of how bad. Uh, we received a pretty, um, pretty terrible update about at 1 o'clock this morning. Um, and then a bit better uh, update about 8 o'clock this morning. So if you would, um, pray for uh, Jennifer uh, and her uh, mother, uh, Charlotte, as she is in the hospital. Well, beloved, if you have uh, a scripture in front of you, a Bible in front of you, I invite you to turn to page 810, Matthew chapter 5, beginning in verse 21. By way of recap, we're going through much of the Sermon on the Mount during this Epiphany Tide. We're going through much of the Sermon on the Mount, and we find ourselves here this morning in Matthew chapter 5, verses uh, 21 through 30. And I ask you to get a Bible um, and to open it and to have it out in front of you because I'm going to be referencing uh, quite a few of these verses, and you'll want to be able to reference them with me. But by way of recap, let me begin. The past several Sundays, I've talked about how God requires obedience and not perfection. That too often we think that that God demands perfection of those who are His sons and daughters. No, that perfection was in fact demanded and fulfilled by our Lord Jesus Christ. That's part of what grace is, that we receive that in our lives. But what He requires from us is obedience. And obedience comes from the heart, knowing that yes, we will fail here and there, But through repentance, we're constantly turning back to the Lord, saying, Lord, forgive us and sanctify us. The Lord requires obedience and not perfection. We also know that Jesus, as he said himself in just uh, just last Sunday's text, just before ours this morning, that he came not to uh, destroy the law, not to abolish it, but to fulfill it, to fill it up, to give us maybe even a deeper insight into what the law is requiring of mankind. And then finally, we were reminded that we are called to teach these commands that Jesus is giving here in the Sermon on the Mount to one another, to our children, to our grandchildren. We are called to teach them. Well, Jesus continues as a fulfillment of Moses in the Sermon on the Mount here, and he does it kind of in these next um, six sections. And we notice that if you look in your scripture here, there's teachings on anger and lust and divorce and oaths and retaliation and loving your enemies. Jesus is going to reference the Torah, the law, 
he's going to give this, this kind of cycle. You have heard it said of old, but I say to you. And we'll see that in these next six teachings, uh, two of which we're going to talk about uh, this morning, Jesus doesn't throw out the old law. He fulfills it. He's giving us a deeper teaching into what is going on. There's a logic here in what our Lord is doing, and if we miss the logic, then we'll, um, uh, I think we'll be, uh, we'll be remiss on, on several accounts, and one is that we won't see the logic, and we won't want to, of course, apply this to our lives. But we see that um, Jesus is going to say, this is what you have heard, this is what I'm telling you, and then he's going to ask or give obedience, how to be obedient. This is not just straight law, it's obedience. Let me begin, too, here this morning by saying uh, what Jesus is not doing, and we can fall into these traps as we read through the Sermon on the Mount in these next six teachings. What he's not doing is condemning Jewish externalism and then saying, we as Christians ought to have this internalism. What do I mean by that? Well, for instance, in our first section, he talks about first murder and then anger. What Jesus is not doing is saying, well, the Jews held just to external things. Don't don't commit a sin that everybody can see out there. And Christians, we just care about uh, the heart. But that's not so. What our Lord is doing is saying that to be obedient to Him and to the Father in heaven, we want both our hearts and our actions to be um, pleasing, and to be obedient uh, to uh, the Lord. So l- let me give a few examples of, of how we can kind of misinterpret what our Lord is doing before we get into the text. The first is this. Um, have, you ever, uh, have you ever been um, a Christian, and I can say that I have, just to give you some grace here, that has, has a really good Christian poker face? Anyone? I, I can put on a pretty good Christian poker face. And, and what, I'm, what I mean by that is um, I can kind of get the external laws in order in such a way that you won't see what's really going on in, as our 1662 prayer book says, is really um, the heart of a miserable offender that we can put the poker face on, okay? That we can, in fact, uh, come to Sunday worship. We can bow reverently when we're asked to bow. We can come and receive the sacrament of Holy Communion, but it's all, in fact, uh, just a facade, okay? But we can also be equally guilty of just internalizing these commands, right? Where, yes, we do function from a pure heart, but that pure heart is lived kind of in, in our own mind. We don't actually ever give ourselves for the other. We never move into actions, into obedient actions that bring uh, the gospel, the love of God to others. We kind of sit in our own mind and see the fact of the matter is, my, uh, my beloved, that, uh, that our Lord wants all of us. He doesn't want us to commit the sin of murder. We, we, we know that. But he also doesn't want us to have undue anger and hate in our heart that often can, in fact, lead uh, to murder. He wants all of us. I want to say also that when Jesus says, but I tell you, he's relocating all of Christian morality in himself. Again, not, in, um, not, not antithetical to the Old Testament, one of my favorite commentators, and if you have a chance to buy his commentaries, they're actually really, really good. He's got a, a two-fold commentary on Matthew and one on John. His name is Dale Bruner. He's a Presbyterian writer, theologian. Um, he is just amazing. But he says that a lot of um, Christians teach 
that what Jesus is doing in these sections is he's setting up something antithetical. You've got the Old Testament over here and then Jesus' teachings and they're an antithesis to one another. And Bruner uses this great phrase. He says, no, no, no. They are, um, they are epitheses. They are above taking what is given to us in the Old Testament and, and, and fulfilling them or going above and beyond. And we see that here all in the eye of our Lord who says, I tell you. So let's move to the text, brothers and sisters. You have heard that it was said to those of old, referencing the sixth commandment, you shall not murder. And whoever murders will be liable to judgment. It's obvious to us as believers who know the Decalogue, we often will recite the Decalogue during uh, Advent and during Lent. We know it. The disciples knew this. They knew the law. But 22 says this, But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. I'm going to pause there. This, um, this translation of everyone who is angry is, is not, it didn't quite capture what our Lord is, is getting at. Really, the best translation is, is one who um, enters into resentment, or even better, one who carries their anger. Have you ever carried anger in your life? Carried it? You've been angry at another human being, another person? And maybe even rightfully so, but you have carried that anger, and that anger has moved to resentment. This is what our Lord is speaking about. For we know that there are times when the righteous are to be angry, but he's saying here, everyone who is kind of anger, angry continually, carrying it, this will be liable to judgment. Our Lord also uses that, um, that, that, that word there, brother. You see, he's keeping this in the household here of faith, first and foremost. If you're angry with your brother and you're carrying it, or your sister, of course, you're liable to the judgment. Because, in fact, what is the commandment of, of murdering, breaking that commandment? What does it usually start with? It starts with carrying anger and resentment that is cashed out in reality in the act of murder. He goes on to say that if you're angry with your brother, you'll be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. Now, I know as someone who is a card-carrying sinner of anger, I, I just, that's, a, that's a sin of mine that I struggle with, I can actually really uh, resonate with what our Lord is saying, that anger kind of um, begins in the heart, and then it just begins to manifest itself in different ways, and we see it here. You begin with this anger that you're carrying towards your brother, and then you speak a word of insult. Some of you may have been raised on the King James, I think which says raka here. You heard that term, that term raka, whoever says raka to their brother um, or sister. We don't know exactly what that means. We translate it as one who gives an insult to another uh, human being, and that might be correct. Uh, one church uh, father, specifically Augustine, says that um, when he did some research on, on raka, uh, some were, were telling him that that was actually one of those um, phrases when someone's so angry you can't actually understand what they're saying, that it really didn't have actually a meaning. We translate it as insult. Has anyone ever been that angry that you just, and it just it blurts out of you? I mean, we're laughing, but that's a manifestation of the heart of anger that is blurt out, bl blurted out in either an insult or this almost kind of non, 
what's the word I'm looking for? It's it, it, not inaudible, but something that you can't understand towards your neighbor or your brother. And then finally, he says, uh, that person will be liable to the council, and then whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire, saying that then the next and kind of um, final stage of the heart issue with anger is that you call your own brother a fool. Now, we're studying the book of Proverbs in, our, um, in one of our uh, Sunday school classes. This word fool here is one then who is wicked, who despises the things of God. We move on and we call one of our brothers that. And we say that this finally ends with the Old Testament command, uh, you know, commandment here of breaking it. Uh, can often end in murder. But our Lord is saying that we can, in fact, in our heart through allowing anger to overtake us, commit heart murder is what it is. Commit heart murder. And all of this will be liable to the hell of fire. Our Lord is very serious here about anger. Anger is a sin, I think, um, in Christianity that, is, uh, that can often be managed kind of well. Uh, because so, mu- so many times we, um, we keep our anger to ourselves or we blurt it out at certain points, maybe to our spouse or, or quietly um, by ourselves. But anger can overtake a Christian. It can overtake a Christian. But our Lord does not leave us alone. He gives us the cure, the antidote. As I mentioned earlier, he gives us that movement towards obedience. So here's what he says. Verse 23. So if you, and I want us to read ourselves into the text, brothers and sisters, if you are offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. Again, one of the plays of the devil, brothers and sisters, is to get us to to create a dichotomy between what happens here on a Sunday morning in worship and what happens in our lives, kind of lived Monday through Saturday. We have the peace every morning in our liturgy. Now, typically, the peace is where we all, with smiley faces, greet each other, and we should. You should be really nice to one another. But if you know that that a brother or a sister in this congregation has something against you, you are to go to them. Because the Lord in worship values not only what we're bringing to Him, but He values where our heart is, that we're never to kind of create a dichotomy between the two. That for us, beloved, um, the worship of God um, should not and ought not to be done from a heart that has um, either anger left unchecked or you know that someone has anger towards you. We must be reconciled to them. He goes on to say, first be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. That reconciliation actually is a requirement for us to really worship God as believers. Now that was for the household, but he also gives, our Lord gives common advice to his disciples for how we relate to those outside of the church. Verse 25, come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are going with him to court lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard and you be put in prison. Surely I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. So also for us, beloved, how we interact with non-believers or those outside the church, we are called also to be reconciled with them for there are just practical benefits for living that way. 
But do you see the shape of how our Lord is teaching in the Sermon on the Mount? He's giving what the law said, then he's going deeper, he's unpacking it for us and saying, but I tell you this, and then he's giving a way for us to break that cycle. How do you break the cycle of anger in your life? Well, once you've sinned, you go to your brother. That's how you break this. And moving on to lust. Our Lord says, you have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Again, our Lord is bringing up a commandment, you shall not commit adultery. It's interesting that anger, uh, the sin of, of anger, and the sin of, of adultery, um, in the heart specifically, but also kind of out there in the physical world, both end up utilizing your feelings towards someone, other, someone else, another, as almost an objectification of them. The anger, when you get so mad at someone else, uh, you tend to kind of use them as, as the means by which your anger is kind of riled up. You're, you're objectifying them. But we also see that adultery is the same way, that, um, that in particular lust, we will see, functions the same way. Our Lord says, but I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery. We often, we need to draw a line here, uh, a line of, um, uh, not of divergence, but, but to show kind of two things going on. One of the questions that's often asked about this passage is, is, is looking at another person who's not your spouse and admiring beauty in another lust? Is that lust? And I think for us, actually, no, admiring the beauty in another, specifically another of the opposite sex, is not in fact lust. Admiring of beauty, of the createdness of another, someone being beautiful, that's, that's not lust. Because actually you see here, and, and the ESV is kind of sneaky, but it, it at least gets this out, it says, or our Lord says that um, if you look at a woman or a man with lustful intent, that is you're looking at them with the intent to lust, to objectify them, to kind of visualize them for your own good, your own kind of, um, you know, uh, your own gratification, we might say. That is when lust has entered in. And our Lord says that lust in the heart and adultery are, um, are, 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 are both sins, both sins. One is of the heart and one is physical, but we often see that one leads to the other. You see, again, you can appreciate the beauty of another human being without lusting. I've heard it said before by actually Father Lyle Dorset, the founder of this church, that for men and women in lust, um, it's when, you're, when you take the second look at the other person. It's that second look that lustful intent is often encapsulated uh, within. But we see, too, that, our, uh, that the devil himself, with anger, can use righteous anger and turn it into something that we just gnaw on and that we keep, that then, of course, is moved into sin. And we can see that looking at the objective beauty of the other can also, by the devil, be utilized to move us into lust, into committing adultery with our heart. St. John Chrysostom says that for those that are married, if you feel that you're moving towards lustful intention, he gives some really practical advice. Turn to your spouse and love them more. <laughs> great, great advice. Turn to your spouse and love them more. Love them deeper. Ask the Lord to move in your heart. 
But our Lord, again, gives this moment of obedience as well. He diagnoses the problem. You've heard it said, you should not commit adultery, but I'm going even further and saying that if you look at someone with lustful intent, you've committed adultery in your heart. But here's the moment of obedience. It's a difficult word for us. Verse 29. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than your whole body be thrown into hell. Years ago, I was talking with Father Daniel, um, actually about this passage, because uh, we hadn't, hadn't preached on it in, in sev- several years. Um, we were talking about this passage, and we kind of laughed that we felt like one of the best sermon illustrations might be to set up a nice table up here, kind of below the chancel, and to put a, put a TV, put a smartphone, and get a sledgehammer, and the sermon literally just being me beating a beating to death TVs and smartphones and all the, just beating them. And then, you know, as Anglicans, I'll give a hearty, in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, and amen, and then we'll, we'll move on with, with, with the service. But here's what's funny. Yes, is this, is this hyperbole? Um, uh, kind of. <laughs> kind of. And, and, and what, what do I mean by that? Well, our Lord is getting the, at the fact that your, your eyes and your hands are really important parts of your ability to live and to move uh, in this life, right? And he's saying that to remove one of those to keep you from sin, to save your soul is more important. Again, we often run over this and we say our Lord's just being hyperbolic, you know, um, let's just kind of, let's move on. But here's the thing, if you believe in an afterlife, and if you believe that if you continue in sin without repentance, you go to hell, wouldn't it be better to make it to heaven and to live without a left eye or a right eye or a hand? Well, of course, it, it would be. But back to the smashing of the smartphones and of televisions and other things. Our Lord is saying, in obedience, are you willing to take decisive action to get rid of the thing that is um, adding fuel to the fire? Are you willing to get rid of it? Are you? We think about, uh, you know, you keep reading statistics on, on pornography. And it's like, I read a statistic uh, just last week, that it's like, it's no, 95 of, 95%, this is crazy, 95% of men in the United States, 95% have looked at pornography at some point in their life, okay? 72% of women have looked at pornography. And of course, I'm, I'm using this as an example because it's just so, it's, it's out there, it's in the culture, it's easy. So here's the deal, smash the things that might be causing you or tempting you to move into lust. Smash them. Get rid of them, destroy them. Take decisive action for that scene is an act of obedience. Take your eye out, cut your hand off if you need to. For of course, it's better for us to lose one of our members, then our whole body go into hell. Now, beloved, um, let me say this. With anger and with lust, I think all of, us in this, all of us in this nave are guilty of these sins to some degree or another. But let me say this. As I led with, God requires obedience of us, not perfection. We cannot be perfect in this life, but he requires obedience. So here's the deal. If you struggle with anger, 
within your family, within, uh, with church members? Do you actually go and seek reconciliation or do you like to um, function with the, let's just let bygones be bygones? I hear that a lot. No, no, no. The Christian following in obedience our Lord says, I've got to go seek reconciliation. I know my brother is upset with me, right? Or maybe you're upset with your brother, Matthew 18, to go to them and to seek reconciliation. But you know what? Like, nobody really wants to do that. I don't like to do that. But if we do it, it keeps that sin of anger at bay because through repentance, we're able to be sanctified. And then finally, if, if lust is something that you struggle with, take decisive action. Go to confession with a priest. Confess to one of your dear friends. Get, get the sin out there and then seek decisive action to pluck out or to cut off your hand, as it were, to get rid of the sin in your life. But here's the thing, beloved. 1 John 1, 9 says this. If we confess our sins, he is what? He's faithful and he's just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If you're anything like me, a miserable sinner who's trying to live in the grace of God, be encouraged that when you confess your sin and try to walk in obedience with the way that our Lord has outlined here with anger and with lust, that you're his child, that you'll be cleansed from all unrighteousness and your sins forgiven. So if you're here this morning and you're despairing, despair not, repent of your sin, know that the Lord forgives you, Come to the table of Holy Communion and receive the body and blood of our Lord. Go out into those doors and know this, finally, that as our Lord said earlier in the Sermon on the Mount, your obedience to His commands is finally not just for yourself, but it's for those around you. Because when you seek reconciliation, when you destroy the things in your life that are helping you and aiding you in your sin and others see that, They will do what our Lord Jesus says um, that they should do. They will give honor and glory to their Father who is in heaven through the way that you are living in obedience to our Lord. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.